Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel, and I am one of the pastors here at Res City. Very thankful to have you worshiping with us on this Sunday morning. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to get into our sermon today. It's our uh, second week of the Sermon on the Mount series that we're doing throughout the fall. So one we're very excited about, the sort of iconic, very important foundational message from Jesus about uh, for us, like this kind of uh, continues to be relevant and, and fundamental for all Christians throughout all times and all places. And so we're going to be spending our fall really digging into that and kind of talking about how when we really follow this, we take it seriously, we kind of live as a countercultural kingdom in whatever uh, society we might be living in. So let me pray for us and we'll get into it. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this uh, Sunday morning where we can gather together uh, as one, as a unified people. Lord, I pray that you would be with us in this place. Give us wisdom. Give us encouragement too, Lord, to, to be the people you call us to be, Lord. Help us to know, have wisdom to know what that looks like. Help us to have um, excitement and joy about living that out, God, too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so Julie and I, we apparently... If you have, like, talked to me before, like, there's a decent chance you've heard me complain about this. Uh, we live in a part of the city that apparently has, like, got an extra faulty, uh, like, you know, the energy grid is extra faulty on our block. Because, like, our power is going out all the time. Like, seriously, I've never lived somewhere where I've had the power go out, like, maybe more than once. Like, I can hardly remember it ever going out more than once. And, like, we have it go out, like, multiple times a summer ever since we've been living in this, this house of ours. And it's super frustrating. Like, it's really annoying because, like, you start to realize, like, how much, like, you rely on electricity. Uh, you know, we will, like, we've had times where the power's been out for, like, 15 hours. And we keep going into the into rooms and flicking the light switch on, and then we're like, oh, that's right, the power. You know, it's just like, it, it's so a part of our daily routines that we do, we use electricity without even thinking about it. Like that kind of motion to flick on a light switch is something we literally don't even think about. It's so kind of ingrained into our lives. That's how much we rely on electricity. And it really just kind of, you know, when you're not prepared for it, it really sucks. It's really hard. You know, there's no internet, so you can't work. There's just not a lot you realize, like, oh, mesh, like, so much of what we do is tied to the internet, like, having internet access, um, even just hanging out, like, in the night. Um, we can't cook or microwave anything. Um, we can't open our fridge and freezer to get to stuff, because if we do, then the food will start to go bad really quickly. And even, you know, even without that, I think it's about four hours you can leave food in the fridge before it goes bad, um, and 24 hours in your freezer. So your freezer can last a little longer as long as you don't open it up, but your fridge, like, we've poured, we've gotten rid of a lot of ketchup, like gallons of ketchup have been thrown out of our house over the last few years, so let's just say that. So um, I've learned, like, to, you know, we, we take things like electricity for granted all the time. Now, in the ancient world, in, the, in the, the time that Jesus was living, obviously there was no electricity. Um, and, and today in our sermon, we're going to talk about a couple of images that uh, Jesus uses that were really important in their time because they didn't have electricity. And sort of understanding that helps us to understand the importance of these two things. And when these two things we find are applied to us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we start to really understand the effect they have in the world, okay? And Jesus doesn't want us to take that role that we've been given for granted. So today we're going to be talking about salt and light, okay? We're going to talk about the salt and light that the world needs. Like, 
in the message of the gospel and in people living it out. We're going to spend our whole time really just unpacking these two images and talking about what it looks like for us to be that and how the church has actually been that in a lot of ways in society and how we can sort of, you know, kind of jump in and continue on in that, all right? So um, we are going to also be doing... Uh, question and response. Um, it's a kind of a fun thing. We, we, we don't pull it out for every sermon series, but we try to pull it out from time to time. Uh, in, in series, we think it'd be really fun and really, you know, there'd be a lot of really good conversation and question to come from them. So please submit a question uh, and I won't maybe necessarily answer it, but I'll give my best response to it a- after the sermon if we have time uh, to get to two, two or three, hopefully. So um, please go to our website, redcitychurch.org on your phone. You can scroll down a little bit and you'll find the spot where you can submit those. So let's get into the passage here today. We're actually going to do it out of order. So Jesus talks about salt first, then light. I actually want to do light first then salt. So we're going to start in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay, so the image here, it's, it's pretty easy to understand. Lights. Picture uh, a city on a hill. It's, it's lit up from torches and candles. And, you know, you're supposed to think of like a traveler at night uh, looking for a safe destination for the evening, feeling a little lost, maybe a little bit frazzled, kind of discombobulated. And they see this city up on the hill and it's able to kind of guide them into safety for the night. Uh, another way you could think of it is, is a lighthouse. You know how lighthouses are supposed to kind of guide boats in safely in the dark because they can't see the cliffs or rocks that might be in front of them um, in the middle of the night. And so a lighthouse is supposed to kind of lead them in, into safety. That's kind of the image here that, that's being discussed, a city on a hill. Um, and so what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom coming, this announcement that Jesus has made that we talked about last week is like a world in darkness is, is gifted the light bulb. Okay, that's kind of the image we're supposed to take from it. It's a little anachronistic. Obviously, Jesus isn't talking about light bulbs because it didn't exist at that time, but that's how we can kind of think about it. Okay, and I just want us to think about like how much the light bulb has changed the world. Again, this is probably something we totally take for granted. Um, you know, but there are people who had to live in a world without the light bulb, and it was dramatically different than the world we live in today. Um, so before the light bulb, the day ended at sunset. Like, you know, there's not much else you could do once the sun went down. And so you can maybe spend a little bit of time at home, but people just kind of went to bed. They would sleep from dusk till dawn a lot of nights. They'd get like 12 hours of sleep a night, which sounds kind of great, you know, when you think about it sometimes. Um, but once night hit, like, you couldn't really go outside either. Uh, there were, you know, all sorts of, first of all, you could just get lost in the darkness. But there was also, like, in the darkness is when, like, the predators come out, right? Um, it's, uh, you know, that there, there's all kinds of nasty stuff associated with going out in the dark at night. So you just kind of stayed in. Um, and I mean, like, you know, again, we don't really, you know, some of us maybe don't have a good grasp of that. But I mean, like, I know women, you understand this better at night. You avoid dark alleyways, right? Because you don't know what's lurking there. I know that I've had, you know, Julie tell me about that. It's something I know men don't think about as much. But think about, you know, that's kind of what the ancient world was like. And it wasn't just like the occasional dark alley. It was everywhere you went at night was like that. You just don't know what's sort of lurking in there. 
But when the light bulb was invented, all of that changed, right? People could stay up as late as they wanted. They didn't have to go to bed at a certain time. They could continue working, could continue hanging out, continue doing all the things that they would normally do during the day at night. Um, And also, there's no longer a sort of total fear of the darkness. You can take the light bulb with you. You can kind of, you know, put, put up street lamps everywhere so that we're rarely going anywhere that is not illuminated by the light bulb. That's what Jesus says the coming of the kingdom is like. Something about it lights the world up. A world in darkness has now found illumination. And I think what he's saying here when he says, you are the light of the world, is that we have been made incandescent by our unification with Jesus, by our humbly and seriously following him, and the effects on us. The gospel is supposed to change us. This announcement is supposed to change who we are uh, as we meditate on and live out repentance, faith, grace. We understand the forgiveness of sins and the transforming work of the Spirit on us. It actually makes us light up, right? Like those glow-in-the-dark fishes at the bottom of the ocean, right? Like just kind of lighting up everything else down there. That's how we're supposed to act in the world, Now, Jesus gives a real common-sense observation about light in verse 15. What do you do when you have light? If this is true of you, like, what should, you know, how should you manage that? Would you, you know, you'd make sure that everyone else could see this probably, right? That you wouldn't just stick it under a bowl. And I think this is, you know, something we have to take serious. I think this is worth our reflection. Again, it's a common-sense observation, but when we really think about how seriously we take this sort of declaration. It's not just like, we're talking about this in a little bit, it's not just a command of Jesus to be light. It is, a, it is something that is actually just true of us because of us following Jesus, having proximity to him. I think a lot of times we can be afraid to be really truly Christian to the people around us. Um, and there are good reasons for that sometimes where we might have that fear. I mean, the church has turned people off at times, right? Here, here's my flashlight. I'm going to, you know, look how bright it is as we, like, blind people with it, right? We, like, shine it right in their eyes kind of obnoxiously. And when that happens, like, you blind people and it's like they're still in darkness, right? Like, it's not actually helping anyone out. You know, all that you're doing is, is blinding them. It's kind of the same as leaving them in, in, them in darkness. So I think that happens, but also, to be honest, I think Christians, it's, it's, they have, we have added to the darkness of the world. There's no disputing that. Um, and it doesn't really do us any good to, you know, just deny that or say that that hasn't happened. So maybe we're afraid sometimes when around people that, you know, people might think that that's what we're doing, right? We're not actually, you know, adding anything to the world. And we might be afraid of that too, right? And so it's, I think it's smart of us to be sensitive to that, yes. But the whole point of us taking this seriously is to believe we've been given this light Yes, for our benefit, but also for the benefit of the world around us. That's what Jesus is saying here. You don't, like, accrue interest on your light by hiding it under a bowl. It's not how it works, right? It doesn't have any effectiveness if we just keep it under a bowl. It only works if you pull it out. It only helps people and attracts them if they can actually see it, if they actually understand that that is true. But I wonder if sometimes we just don't actually believe that we have light to offer for some reason. You know, or maybe we just don't care. Maybe we kind of just take it for granted. We think this is cool that this is true of me, maybe, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think we have to believe that there's something worth sharing about this light uh, 
which if we're honest, I don't think we always deep down believe to be the case. I know that's true of me. Like, I'm not, I'm not out here throwing stones. I can think of ways in which I find myself affected by this too. And like, you guys pay me to like talk about Jesus and stuff, right? So, so it, I understand if that's like how you feel sometimes, but I want, I think we should really got to read this and kind of grapple with it and take it seriously, what Jesus is calling us to here. I want to, I really want to try to, if that is how you feel, I want to try to change that today by encouraging us, okay? And to do that, I want us to move on to this next image that Jesus uses talking about salt, okay? So this is verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot, now, salt might seem like a weird kind of off-the-cuff metaphor, right? Salt, oh, that's like, you could have picked a lot of stuff, Jesus, and you picked, you know, salt. But in the ancient world, this would carry a ton of weight, okay? So it's important for us to understand, you know, what salt did in the ancient world. Okay, so, so one ancient source says this about salt. The world cannot endure without salt, Okay, the world like literally could not endure without salt. That's what one ancient person said. And salt was actually so valuable in ancient Rome that soldiers were sometimes paid with it. So it was as valuable as just giving someone money was to just give them salt. That's actually where we get our English word salary from. It's actually from uh, the, the Latin word sal, which means salt. Okay, that's how important salt was in the ancient world. And it had two purposes, two purposes in the ancient world. The first, first one is when we are like, yeah, gets, makes sense, flavoring, okay? There was no, you know, aioli-based sauces in the ancient world or whatever the cool trendy thing is to like spice our food up or to make our food taste better going down in the ancient world. So you had to rely on, on certain things like herbs and spices and salt was one of the most important flavorings that you would put on food to sort of help you get it down. Okay, so, so that's really important. But even more important than that is that salt was used to preserve food. So remember, this is a world without electricity, so obviously no fridges. So, okay, so either that means like you have to eat food immediately after you prepare it, or you have to find some other way to preserve it. And salt was actually one of the main things people used to keep food from going bad. So salt was this main source for preserving. That's why this, this ancient source would say, like, the world cannot endure without salt. Salt pre- preserved life because it preserved food. Now, Jesus is saying, we are supposed to do these two things, okay? Disciples of Jesus are supposed to flavor and preserve the world around us, okay? Flavoring, among other things. Lots of ways we could think about the ways in which Christians and, and the gospel itself flavor the world, Okay, introducing things like wisdom, grace, comfort, hope. And honestly, just like the authenticity that comes from people who can admit they're sinners, right? Who don't have to feel perfect and so can sort of introduce the sort of like, it's okay to not be okay into the bloodstream around us. Like these are kinds, the kinds of things that we need to make, you know, life in the world bearable, right? In the same way that like salt helps you to eat food, like helps you to get it down easily and taste a little bit better, these kinds of things flavor the world. They make life in a world that is, you know, that needs it more bearable. And preservation, it keeps the world from falling into total corruption and decay, I think, is what Jesus is talking about here. Now, maybe you're skeptical about that. 
Maybe you're, you're skeptical because you've heard or you kind, of, you kind of think that the church has really actually just made society worse in a lot of ways. And there's lots of examples that you can think of. That's usually a narrative that we hear, right? We hear oftentimes and we're very aware of, right? And yes, the church, like I said, has made messes. Absolutely. And we shouldn't be afraid to admit that. I actually think, you know, we should spend time mulling over it, lamenting it, figuring out where we need to repent and turn as we sort of look at the dark parts of what the church has done. And we did that a little bit in our last series, in our Build and Plant uh, series this summer. Okay, but is that the whole story? Is that really the only legacy the church has left in the world? People who have followed Jesus and, and cared about living the gospel in their lives? Not even close. Okay, when we really look at the impact of the church, we find something different than that. Okay, John Dickerson, he's an, he was an award-winning journalist, worked for a bunch of major media outlets, um, and he, I don't think he was a Christian at this time, but he did a big investigation, and he turned it into a book called Jesus Skeptic. And this is a quote from the book. When it comes to Christianity, my 10-year investigation, so he spent kind of 10 years investigating the real impact, kind of like a, like a journalist would do, of Christianity in the world, has convinced me that my generation of Americans, millennials, born in the 1980s and 90s, has largely been denied the truth about Christianity's influence and record on social justice. We've been told the negative moments in Christian history, and we've been told the positive moments from other world belief systems, but we have not been exposed to the whole truth. If we believe the church's impact on the world has only largely been a net negative, then we're going to be afraid to be salt and light. It's going to be really hard to take this seriously, what Jesus has said. Okay? But I think the irony of that is that when we critique the church, we're critiquing it through the, the lens of what we value in our society only because of Christianity's influence in the first place. Okay, there is actually, like, the impact of Christianity on the world we live in has been so massive, it's, like, it, pretty much impossible probably to understate it. And I want to talk about a few things that exist because of the gospel and people who believe the world was not the same as before. And I'm just kind of scratching the surface here, okay? Like, I would highly encourage you uh, to kind of, you know, look into this, some of this on your own. But I just want to, like, talk about a few things, all right? Here they are. Here's the list. Universities, modern science, hospitals and modern medicine, human rights, the end of slavery. We even talk about kind of how we view, uh, you know, the, talk about specifically using the example of the Me Too movement, but just kind of like how we view women in the world, okay? So um, universities, let's start there. Modern colleges. These came directly out of cathedrals, schools that were formed from monasteries. So you had people that were part of the church who had this conviction that truth was worth seeking because Jesus had called us to seek out truth and had presented truth to us. And so because Jesus had come and called us to do that, it was worth it to continue to seek it out in our lives. And so they literally built centers uh, where people could study the truth of the world and learn more about it. And from this, the, the, we're, and, and, and this sort of method that encouraged people to think freely, we get modern education. We get literacy, we get public education. All of this is ultimately traced back to the work of these people who are starting these kind of early universities. Okay, modern science. Okay, we look at the, the scientific revolution. Okay, this incredibly important moment in history as a sort of, you know, foundational to the world we live in today. Okay, produced electricity, among other things. Right? And this was just this era of explosion of scientific discovery. Okay? And I think sometimes we think, well, this is kind of where you know, we started to learn that 
you know, Christianity, uh, you know, didn't work, right? Or this Christian view of the world didn't work. It butted, head with what, butted heads with what we were learning um, in the scientific discovery. It was kind of signaled the doom of Christianity because, you know, faith and science are totally incompatible. You would be very surprised to learn that, like, about 98% of the, of the people who are associated to the scientific revolution were committed Christians, and you can actually find that as you read straight from them. You just read their diaries. As they kind of talked about what was behind them choosing to, to, to study the world and learn more about it. We find that people like Newton, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, Bacon, all, the big, all these big names, they thought the world was worth it to study. That they should learn how it worked because there was a divine creator who had set it up. A certain way. And it was on us as humans to figure out how this divine creator had done that. And so when we really look at why these founders of modern science chose to do the work that they did, it was this Christian influence that gave their quest meaning. It gave them a, a reason to study the world. They didn't feel like there was any other reason to study the world other than the fact that there was a divine creator God behind it, who had called them, who had tasked them with studying and learning more about the world. Hospitals in modern medicine. We know Christian hospitals existed at least as early as AD 400, long before, you know, really modern medicine really developed, and that was a big part of the scientific revolution. And they were definitely crude compared to, you know, the modern uh, hospitals we have now. But these were places where anyone who was sick, who was poor or hungry, could go and receive God's love and care. That was the whole purpose. And from these uh, grew modern hospitals. As modern science developed, it intersected with this already sort of medieval Catholic or cathedral hospital to produce kind of what we have today. Um, and again, the, the people who spurred this on, almost, almost all of them, as we study them, were all committed Christians. You might not know this, but the top 10 hospitals in the United States, and I think like 16 or so of the, of the top 20, were all founded by Christians. And the first doctors at all of those hospitals were all educated in Christian universities. All right, let me give you an example. A, a guy named Edward Jenner, he is the inventor of the first vaccine. Um, he is often cited as having saved more lives in, in the history of you know, in, more lives than anyone else in human history through kind of the invention of the, va the modern vaccine. And so all these things that used to kind of wreak havoc on the world, things like smallpox, measles, the Black Plague, all this stuff is, was, you know, eradicated by the vaccine. And this is another guy, when we actually read what he thought he was doing, uh, who pursued it for reasons of faith. So he said this at the end of this life, I am not surprised that men are not grateful to me, but I wonder that they are not grateful to God for the good which he has made me the instrument of conveying to my fellow creatures. He saw himself as an instrument of God to bless the world around him. He saw that as his sole purpose, and this kind of spurred him on to study the world and figure out how can we help save lives, okay? It was fundamental to him, okay? Human rights. Basically, like all the things that we believe about human rights, about the dignity that all people are supposed to have, no matter their, uh, their race, their, their gender, their, uh, um, you know, any, any other thing we could use to define people, we say they all have the exact same value. This all comes out of, as we trace this throughout history, comes out of Christian theology and reasoning and beliefs about people. Okay? Without these beliefs of Christianity, there there's really is no basis for human rights, and there's no reason that we can see that they would have just developed. 
Uh, in James 3.9, James is, is just kind of casually writing, and he says, he makes this comment that um, people are made in God's likeness, and so we have to respect them. That's a paraphrase. He just kind of says it. It's, just, it's not a main point that he's trying to make, but he just kind of notes that all people are made in the likeness of God. Now, from that understanding, we get this idea of what you know, people have traditionally called the imago dei, the image of God, something that is in all people, no matter who they are, and we're supposed to treat them as if that's the case. That was an explosive idea, and it took a long time to fully take root and take hold, uh, even, in, even in our society, the very Christian one, but so much that we take for granted in the world about how we should treat others came from this. So let me give a couple examples. Okay, the end of slavery. Now, we normally hear, again, the story of how you know, white slave owners in the South were using Bible verses to justify slavery. And hence, you know, we often think, well, Christianity was a means to keep people in slavery. That's how it worked. Okay? And it's true that obviously there were many people who were using Bible verses to justify the slave trade. But let's think like historians. Okay? Let's just try to put on our, our historian thinking caps here. Why would these slave owners be appealing to their Bibles and using verses to try to justify what they're doing? Well, it's probably because they were having other people share with them Bible verses and Christian reasoning about why they should be setting these people free. It's probably part of a dialogue between people who are all using their Bibles to sort of, you know, talk about how we should treat people, okay? Okay you would only be using Bible verses in response to other people using scriptural reasons and, and Christian underpinnings for liberating all slaves. Okay? And when you study the anti-slavery movements in America and the United Kingdom especially, that's exactly what you find. Our people who are so committed to Jesus, who had uh, incredibly uh, deep and, and they were very open about their Christian convictions, led them to find slavery to be abhorrent. And it ultimately led to, the end, uh, ended, uh, led to the end of slavery as a result, even though there was some resistance. Or consider something even more recent here, okay? Like I said, talk about the, the Me Too movement. Now, as far as I can tell, none, you know, no explicit you know, Christians were behind the start of this movement. So I'm not saying that necessarily. But let's, again, let's think about the context that all this took place in. It's reacting against a sort of cultural assumption that mostly men can act on their sexual impulses whenever they want. That, that's normal, that's okay, and we just kind of, you know, wink, wink about it, with, you know, to each other over it, okay? It's kind of pushing back against that. And basically, we as a culture, as that movement sort of grew, we were all like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Like, we should probably change this. It's kind of striking how quickly that caught on. Why would that be the case? Why would that be the case that that would catch on so quickly? Well, when we look at the, the teachings of Christianity, we find that actually the same thing essentially has been said since the very beginning. And that is in the bloodstream of all the societies that have been majorly touched by Christianity, okay? So 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-7. This is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body, in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter uh, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, to, but to be a holy life. So Paul is saying, 
we are supposed to seek out holiness and purity. And one of the ways we do that is by controlling our lusts, controlling our bodies, and not taking advantage of other people in our midst sexually because we actually, we see them as holy and we see ourselves as holy. This is at the very beginning of Christianity. Now, this is a totally unique innovation in the ancient world. Okay, this, is, this was, uh, you know, what Paul is responding against is very common and normal in the ancient world. So Horace, who's a Roman poet, he says this, if your groin is swelling and a housemaid or slave boy is at hand, arousing constant desire, do you prefer to burst with tension? Not me. I enjoy love that is available and easy. That was the common view in the ancient world, especially if you were a man who had power. Paul is telling the people in his time and place, that's not going to fly here, you guys. That is not okay. Because Christianity has spread and flavored and preserved the world, including how we all see it, it makes sense to us all when that type of argument is advanced in different places because it is so much a part of how we think about the world, what Paul is saying here, that we shouldn't be able to just take advantage of other people, that we should be able to control our bodies, right? That, that, the fact that that could take off without being laughed at and make so much sense to all of us is just an example of the influence that Christianity has had on us in the ancient world. It's all around us. It is so much wired into society that we take it all for granted, but it is there. Now, the assumption that we, you know, maybe we've heard is that, oh, all this stuff would have just happened anyway, you know, just because of pro- natural progress, right? But let's, again, let's think about this like a little bit critically. There have been lots of other societies in human history, and nowhere do we find this sort of confluence of all these things coming together, right? Nowhere do we find all of these things kind of exploding together, right? Uh, Lots of science were around. Modern science only grew up in one of them, okay? On human rights just coming on their own because of progress, Tom Holland, who's an ancient historian, says, that's as theological a conviction as Christ being raised from the dead, okay? You are... That is a faith statement to say, oh, this would have happened no matter what, with or without Christianity. That's a total faith statement, okay? And if we look at the world around us, we actually can probably say, I probably not. It probably was Christianity that was the, the root of this stuff. Okay, I just threw a lot of stuff at you. I know I did, okay? I, I admit, I'm trying to overwhelm, overwhelm you a little bit to make a point, okay? But I'm saying all this to encourage you. Okay, I'm saying all of this so that you don't have to feel fear to let your light shine because when it does, when that has happened historically, we have seen over and over and over again, the world has been flavored and preserved by it. The world has changed. It is a different place. And it it is a historical fact that what Jesus said would be true about his kingdom's influence on the world has been exactly the case. It has been exactly what we've seen happen. The gospel and people living this out have offered light to the world. The church has actually been a preservative, okay? And this isn't the end of the story, all right? Jesus has, is going to come and finish the job, right? We are, he's going to come and, and return and, like, and make, you know, take all the work that we've done and perfect it when he returns and, and establishes his kingdom on earth, Okay? But we have to keep doing that now in the present. That's what he's calling us to do. And we can't continue to flavor and preserve the world if we ourselves don't remain salty. 
Okay, let's return again to what Jesus says in, in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He's saying, in order for this to work, you have got to remain distinctly Christian. You have to retain what makes you salty. Okay? The world needs this. And it needs us to not be like the world, but to stay Christian, to stay uniquely Christian, to be salty. We're of no use to the world if we just try to anonymously you know, live under the radar, just look exactly like it. We're not offering anything new to the world if we're just trying to keep our heads down. Okay? So how do we do that? How do we remain salty? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Okay? I don't think that this is super hard. I think, simply put, we continue to just be people who believe that because of Jesus, the world isn't the same as before, that there is real power in him. What he did mattered and was real, and that by being vitally connected to him through faith, through repentance, through grace, through the Holy Spirit, we are blessed by God so that we may be people who can be a blessing to the world around us. When we truly have that conviction, it emboldens us, but it also makes us have that impact in the world. And notice here what Jesus says, okay? I want us to pause and notice what Jesus is saying here. He says, he doesn't say, you know, you need to try to be salt and light. He says, you are salt and light. This is not something you have to struggle to work to attain. It is true of you already by virtue of you being followers of me, okay? The Sermon on the Mount is not a list of things to do to join the kingdom. This is something we'll find over and over again. It's the ground rules for those who are already members of it. If you understand the gospel, right, if you understand grace truly, if you understand mercy, sin, its corrupting effects, if you trust and hope in Jesus, if you believe the God of the universe is bent on restoring you and the rest of his world, you have all you need to be salt and light. That's where it starts. And then going from there, if we truly believe that stuff, we can be the salt and light that Jesus is calling us to and that we have seen happen throughout history over and over again. So don't be afraid. That's my encouragement to you today. Don't be afraid because Jesus wasn't. He was salt and light to many. He embodies it and we try to be like him with the help of the Spirit. And that's, that's possible as we take this seriously, as we believe the world has been changed forever, and we are people who have been changed by an encounter with Jesus as well, and just seek to live that out. Now, at Rest City, we, we don't think it's important just to talk about this in a sermon. I think it's important for us to kind of continue the conversation, and so we try to have ongoing, you know, places for us to do this. Um, coming up here, you know, in a, in a few weeks, we're going to be starting something called Vocational Huddles. It's a place for you uh, to, you know, come together in your specific vocation, the specific type of work that you do, the way that you connect to the world, uh, and talk about what it looks like to manage through that and be salt and light in those exact kind of specific places with people who kind of are in the same place as you. And, and right after church, um, Laura talked about this this morning, but Ryan is going to be doing a seminar where he talks about like how we can kind of take this seriously by, by thinking about our connections to the city around us and what you know, types of strategies.
strategies you know, that we can implement in our own lives to be really intentional by thinking about just what's around us and how to engage with that in a more uh, intentional way. So I would highly encourage you to check both of those out. Brian's saying, is this going to be an hour after church at 11? Uh, like we said, childcare, pizza provided. Um, so we want to make it easy for you to come to and just, and just hear about that. So anyway, um, let's get into some Q&R and then we'll pray and we'll close with communion and worship and prayer. So do we have any questions? I'm going to guess we do. Uh, just, um, I don't know if you can hear this mic oh, on. Can you turn Julie, the, yeah, the handheld mic on? Thanks. Uh, just one question. How, do you have any advice on um, how to respond when people say things negatively about the church? How, mm-hmm. You know, how do we validate what they're saying and also um, maybe share some of what you said, but not in a defensive way. Yeah, that's great. I think, I think we have to start by acknowledging it, right? Like, you know, I try to include a long list of ways the church has really flavored and preserved the world, okay? It can be true the church has done that while also be true that the church has not always lived up to that, that it has created standards for itself that it hasn't lived out. We shouldn't have any shame in validating that and admitting that that's true. I really don't, I think, I, I don't think we should be scared of that because, again, within Christianity, we have got the, the moral resources to respond to that. Again, we just spent a whole series right before this on the prophets, right? This, this role within God's people where God sends uh, someone to challenge his people to live up to the standard that they're supposed to uh, be living up to, right? So this is a part of who we are, is that we fail to do this, we fall short, we are sinners who have uh, been forgiven by God. The whole reason we're in this place in the, you know, at, at, at the start is because we've repented and acknowledged that. So for us to continue to repent and acknowledge that is just kind of, it's just part of what we do. So it shouldn't be hard for us to do it. But I think also, um, that once we've done that, it opens up, you know, hopefully it opens up people to hear, um, you know, some of the good that has come from, society, uh, from, from the church and society. Now, again, this is a very pastoral thing. I think I've had to learn this as I've grown older. If someone is really angry at the church, they're really mad about the church, it's probably because they personally have been hurt by it. Okay, and so I think for them to ever get to a place to want to hear about the good, you have to get to that point where you're connecting with them on their hurt, trying to, you know, individually live out this salt and light idea with them, okay? And I think once you've done that, once they sort of feel safe, that's maybe the space for you to kind of consider where are some ways I can try to hopefully, uh, you know, open people up to this. Um, and again, like I, like I, I mean, that John Dickerson quote I thought was really helpful because he says, like, I really feel like we just didn't hear this stuff growing up a lot of times for whatever reason. Um, and so understand, like, that's probably true of whoever you're talking to as well. So takes, I don't know, it's like everything else. It's going to take some time maybe and take some friendship and hopefully um, the opportunity will arise. But yeah, hopefully you're encouraged to keep going back to that over and over again because of like the legacy, the family history that we have in the church um, with all this stuff. So yeah, that was it, you said? Okay, cool. Well, let me pray, and then we'll enter into uh, a time of communion. Communion is our opportunity every single week to reset ourselves, to sort of recalibrate ourselves to the Jesus who calls us to be salt and light, 
but also was salt and light, who gives us the model and empowers us to live this out. And he does it through his death and his resurrection. Without that, the church would never have had this influence on society. It would have died off long ago. But because of Jesus empowering it through his death and his resurrection, the church has existed and been able to do this. And so we need to, if we're going to be salt and light, we need to be people who, have, uh, who are regularly uh, connected back to Jesus. And communion is a chance for us to do that every single Sunday, um, tangibly by uh, taking the bread and the cup and being reminded of his body and his blood that were broken and shed for us on the cross. So uh, let's pray. We'll enter a time of worship. We'll have someone in the back who will be willing to pray for you if you need prayer for anything. And then we invite you at some point in there to just come up to the front here and, and grab some communion. Lord, thank you that you don't just, we, you don't just, we don't just read our Bibles and we don't just hear you call us to live as salt and light in the world uh, and leave it at that. But, Lord, we have such a long uh, a cloud of witnesses that we can look to to see the ways in which the church has actually done what you called it to do. I pray that we would be able to be encouraged by that, even when it's hard, even when we do see the ways in which uh, Christians have fallen short of the standard that you've set for us, God. Help us to also know, though, it is possible for us to actually embody this and live this well as we are people who are vitally connected to you, who take seriously what you call us to to be and to live in the Sermon on the Mount, Lord. We can have a great effect in our neighborhoods, in our cities, and with the people we know around us, God. Help us to know what that looks like individually for each of us um, and to live it out well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.